0: Welcome to today's episode of the Metrics at Measure Up podcast. Today, we are joined by Sam Baker, principal at Scale Venture Partners. Today, we'll be covering five main topics with Sam, including number one, how to think about benchmarking, especially from an investor's perspective. Number two, designing a benchmarking framework. Three, what B2B SaaS and cloud metrics to benchmark. Four, how to avoid metrics and benchmarking overload. And fifth, a bonus topic, kind of the private SaaS and cloud company valuation trends today. Sam, please take a moment to give a brief overview of your journey to becoming a guest on the Metrics at Measure Up podcast.
1: Hey, Ray, thanks so much for having me on the show today. I I really appreciate it. And I think I owe it to Doug Landis for introducing the two of us originally. So a huge shout out and thank you to him. I've been investor over at Scale Venture Partners for about six years now, and for any of our listeners who aren't familiar today, uh, Scale Venture Partners, you know we're a Bay Area-focused venture capital fund focused on primarily investing in early and revenue B2B software, what we call enterprise software investing. We led early rounds in companies like DocuSign, HubSpot, Box, Bill.com, RingCentral, a lot of companies that have become household names in the SaaS and cloud ecosystem. My background prior to working at scale is a mix of both operating and investing. I was at Box in the pre-IPO days, which was one of our early portfolio companies. And prior to that, I was at a Boston-based venture capital fund to funds that focused on venture capital and private equity secondaries, which is now called Glossin Partners. I'm the only person in my entire family that hasn't started my own company, definitely have some of that entrepreneurial blood in me, which is mixing that with the investing world. This is where those two worlds collide and intersect. So thanks again, Ray.
0: Well, thank you for that background. And, you know, Scale has a reputation for being a very quantitative venture fund. In fact, I believe you're currently on Scale Fund Number 7, which was about a $600 million fund. Is that correct, Sam?
1: That's exactly right. Fund 7, $600 million. We manage about $1.9 billion uh, collectively across all of our funds today.
0: Yeah. One of the reasons I was so excited that Doug did introduce us is because you have such a quantitative orientation at Scale Venture Partners. I wanted to talk about how that impacts how you think about investments and more specifically, how that makes you think about benchmarking while you're doing an investment kind of due diligence process.
1: You know, I think that that's a really fair statement. Being quantitative is definitely part of our DNA as a firm at scale. There's a lot of hype in the, in the venture ecosystem, you know, in particular recently, how people have been talking about valuations or year-over-year growth, the unbelievable burn rates that some of the later stage companies have at this point. But if if you really read some of this analysis or press releases, et cetera, very closely, there's there's very, very little conversations that's grounded in real data. And we like to use data at scale to help structure the conversation as, as much as we can. So it's not some of these arm wavy conversations around what things might be, but specifically, what can we prove out from the data? And and this is typically where benchmarking comes in and and why it's important to us. And metrics, the benchmarking of those metrics help you understand the reality of how you stack up as a business or as we as investors look at as as an investment opportunity. You know, benchmarking, if I look around all different apertures of our business, it's, it's something that informs every avenue that we look at as a business. How we diligence our investments, how we make decisions about which companies we want to invest in and which ones we we pass on, how we work with our entrepreneurs, and how we report to our customers or our our limited partners
0: as well. Well, you know, it's interesting. So let me see if I characterize this correctly. Scale typically invests either Series A or Series B. Would that be directionally correct, Sam?
1: Absolutely. And I would say that 70 to 80% of the rounds that we wind up leading are Series A's and Series B's. But paying less attention to the preferred letter of the round, we invest once companies have identified product market fit and they're looking to scale, hence the name and and hence where we tend to invest. So, you know, you're you're doing several hundred K, maybe a million, million, you know, a couple million dollars in run rate revenue. You understand who your customers are, how to find them out in the ecosystem, how to sell them, and hopefully how to retain them over time.
0: Well, you know, I was going to talk to you next a little bit about. Kind of designing a benchmarking framework, but I think it might be more appropriate kind of to talk about what are the metrics that are important to you? Because at Series A versus Series B, I think the metrics you look at from an investment evaluation perspective have to be different. Is that right, Sam?
1: They might be, but it it really depends on the context. I mean, are you specifically asking about whether the metrics are different for a Series A investment opportunity versus a Series B investment opportunity?
0: Yeah, I am, and you know, I was going to talk about benchmarks, but I'm like, well, if you're right after product market fit overall, right, you might be looking at growth rate as more important than customer acquisition efficiency in a Series A type investment. That's kind of what I was thinking about, Sam. You know, again, I
1: think it really depends on context. In that case, if you had asked me this question five years ago, I would have said there was, you know, a distinct, very clear difference between what a typical Series A looked like and a typical series B looks like, but things have been changing so quickly over the last five to 10 years that a typical series A today looks a lot like what a typical series B did, you know, five plus years ago. So it's it's hard to make a, a universal statement that applies to both. But again, going back to the context of what you're looking at, whether or not it's a series B or a series A, you've got to look at the relative maturity of the businesses. I've seen a lot of very mature series A's relatively speaking. And I, I've seen a lot of Series Bs that are less mature than their Series A counterparts. I, I think some of the questions that I would ask to qualify rather than point specifically to the metrics, it's are your sales still mostly founder-led or are they driven on the back of a more sophisticated sales and marketing team? You know, How many quarters have you been in revenue? Have you even been through a full renewal cycle yet? Do you have a, a good understanding of what your customer segmentation and you know your retention profiles are, are starting to look like? Have you had any customers? And I think before jumping into the specific metrics, asking those questions to try to to try to size up what you're looking at is the most important piece.
0: And in, in fact, we're going to talk a little bit about you know, your perspective on what's a great benchmarking framework. But as we're talking about metrics right now, I believe as I was doing my research for the podcast, you have kind of four categories or vital signs of the yeah. health of a SaaS business. Is that correct, Sam? <laughs>
1: That's exactly right. So at scale, we call these the four vital signs of SaaS. And in the same way that, you know, an emergency doctor in the ER is is trying to triage a patient by looking at their pulse and their blood pressure, we have four metrics that we look at as we try to size up SaaS cloud companies. And the four vital signs that we classify are growth, i.e., you know, how quickly is is your business growing? You know, we typically look at either run rate revenue or gap revenue as that measure. Efficiency, number two. You know what quantity of new revenue are you getting for dollars that you're investing into mostly sales and marketing, but other you know, customer success related initiatives as well. Number three is churn. So are your customers sticking with you? Do they like the product? Do they like it enough to buy more of it? I, you know, are, are you seeing net revenue retention curves trend up, or are, are they turning from you? Are you losing customers on that end? And then the final one, number four, is burn. What are all of these things costing you to do as a business? How much money are you collectively spending in sales, marketing, research, development? And then, of course, your general administrative parts of the business as well.
0: Yeah, so if those are your four categories of metrics, your four vital signs, my next question was when you look at benchmarking a potential investment or even an existing portfolio company against their like company peer groups, Do you use that for a benchmarking framework or is there more nuance to a benchmarking framework you would recommend? I think designing
1: an adequate benchmark, again, I always like to say it's it's not necessarily a satisfactory answer, but it really does depend on what you're trying to measure when you're thinking about designing a good benchmarking framework. And there's no universal, correct way to do this. I think that the perspective of who you are and what the deliverable looks like for the, a specific audience are the questions that I would be asking myself. You know, a benchmarking framework for an entrepreneur trying to understand their business might be very different from a departmental leader within that business, whether you're a CFO or a chief revenue officer that's looking to understand things on a more granular basis. Or are you an investor, right? You know, are you looking from the outside in and trying to size up a specific business? A benchmarking framework might look pretty different depending on who you are and who you're working with. that's to say, I'll use an example of what we do at Scale. Our internal benchmarking tool is what we call Scale Studio. And, And this is something that's publicly available for entrepreneurs and folks in the ecosystem to try to understand how their business stacks up against other similar companies and other in the peer groups, whether they're SaaS or cloud businesses raising their seed or series A round or their later stage businesses doing 50, 75, 100 million dollars in run rate revenue, understanding how they perform across all of those four vital sides that I mentioned beforehand. But if I'm thinking about some of the best practices and the ways that, you know, and we've certainly learned a lot of a lot of different ways of things not to do, but looking at a broader benchmarking framework and process, the framework should be as extensible as possible to the aperture of the business that you're focused on. And for us, this is mostly technology businesses that have a recurring revenue model and are selling to some sort of commercial buyer. And especially those, in our case, those are SaaS and cloud companies that are beginning to invest very heavily in the growth of their business, i.e. they're transitioning from a research and development-related Investment spend to a sales and marketing driven company where they're looking for that repeatable go-to-market motion. The benchmarking framework should be focused on a broader set of metrics that are generally accepted and, and well understood within the ecosystem. And if I look again back at Scale Studio, for us, that's mostly gap and non-gap measurements. You know, run rate revenue. You're looking, you know, across the four vital signs, understanding you know how much new ARR you're bringing into the business. What is your down and churn? How much net new are you driving to the business, et cetera. Any benchmarking framework shouldn't have too many metrics, even though it's really tempting to do. Avoid benchmarking overload. I mean, everybody tends to have their pet metrics, but one of the important things to focus on is to make sure that all of the metrics that you're presenting are as relevant to the business as possible. And things change over time. I mean, a benchmarking framework should be flexible and adaptable to the way that the ecosystem changes. And you know, we've seen this a ton over the last five or six years which is why it's important to add flexibility into how you're thinking about building out your benchmarking, analyzing not just companies at a specific point in time, but how those companies have performed over not just one or two or three quarters, but hopefully multiple years. If you can continue to add and update the benchmarking framework, that's the most important thing because a specific point in time might tell you one thing, but three to four years later, you might be looking at a very, very different set of metrics that defines good versus great versus lousy.
0: Yeah, I think that's great advice. In fact, we work with a lot of CEOs and CFOs who, you know, it's usually post-series A, often they're getting ready for a series B or a series C or afterwards. So we have this kind of benchmarking framework for B2B SaaS companies. I'd love to get your feedback on it. And that is, we look at capital efficiency because we believe a lot of investors are really going to look, if I'm going to invest 10, 20 million dollars, What type of return can I see on that? So capital efficiency, looking at kind of customer lifecycle efficacy and efficiency, including customer acquisition efficiency, customer retention efficiency, customer expansion efficiency, and then lastly, kind of an overall operating efficiency, things like gross margins, etc. And then with that framework for those benchmarks and metrics that impact enterprise value, we cascade down to um, metrics and benchmarks that department heads have responsibility for that will impact those enterprise value levers. Does that sound like an interesting kind of macro level framework, Sam? Absolutely.
1: And, you know, I think we boiled those down into the four vital signs and then there's specific subcategories within those four vital signs that map back to some of the terms that you were just talking about. So
0: absolutely. Well, let's double click into a couple of those specific metrics, because our audience will love that. So your first of the four vital signs was growth, how quickly, but you've also got some unique metrics. And I believe one of those is your instantaneous annual growth rate. Can you talk a little bit about that? I believe you call it ICAGR?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I should give my colleague, Jeremy, you know, full credit for coming up with this one. And, and he actually, he's got a great blog post for those that are interested called the growth rate mirage that, that's available on our website. But as you said, a lot of the metrics that we track are somewhat familiar to folks. You know, we track year over year growth, we track sales efficiency, we track cash burn, et cetera. Those are fairly familiar within the ecosystem. There's also some kind of house blend metrics, and you know, IK definitely follows into that category. The I stands for instantaneous, as you had just mentioned, looking specifically for us trying to measure the instantaneous level of growth. So how much net new business did that company add within a specific quarter and then annualizing that number? And what this helps us deliver is the earliest sign of momentum or the inflection point of the business, you know, right as that company is hitting you know, that go-to-market repeatability that we tend to look for and is developing that explosiveness that might be indicative that they could be starting to go the distance the difference between that versus looking at even quarter over quarter growth or year over year growth is is that if you look at instantaneous growth within a specific quarter and annualize it or conversely if you look at the churn that happens within that quarter that can actually be negative and we believe that eye is the most i guess most sensitive metric to growth or contraction that you can measure as a business, at least on a quarterly basis. Does that make sense?
0: It does. So it basically almost smooths out what could happen over a fiscal year. If you had a one quarter spike, you want to know that, or if you had a one quarter downward spike, correct?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, if you look at some of the examples that Jeremy gives in his blog post, which is great, you could look at some of the other you know more standardized growth metrics, whether you're looking at year over year or quarter over quarter. And especially early on, you can hide things, right? You might have a business that has grown from, I'm just making this up, $2 million to $7 million in run rate revenue in a year, which is fantastic. But what you realize is is, is that if you broke that down, you may quickly realize that in the first quarter of that year, the company added $2 million, then they added three, but their most recent couple of quarters were flat. And you would say, hey, wait, Was this related to a couple of really large customer acquisitions early on, whereas the year-over-year growth looks fantastic, but the instantaneous growth actually looks mediocre? That's what it's attempting to catch on to.
0: Now, I was doing a little bit more research right before we jumped on the podcast today, and I was reading like a 96-page document about your four vital (laughs) signs. And there was another metric that I think is so important for especially first-time CEOs and CFOs to think about, and that's growth persistence on an annualized basis. Could you Mm -hmm. talk a little bit about the importance of growth persistence and how your portfolio companies might use that to kind of do annual planning?
1: You know, so growth, growth persistence is is another one that I don't think that we impart too much. And, you know, again, all of our portfolio companies should be running their business in the way that makes the most sense for them, especially as they're fine tuning it to the market that they participate in. Growth persistence would probably be one of those metrics that falls more in, you know, the investor category is if you think about it, it's like what percentage of your previous year's growth can you continue to put up? So it's exactly as it sounds, like how much of your overall aggregate growth persists from year to year to year? It's the first derivative of growth. So if you grew 100% year over year, and then you grew 100% in the second year, your growth persistence would literally be 100% because you've maintained that 100% growth trajectory. And over time, growth persistence should flatten out. I mean, we generally look at a metric at scale, 85% growth persistence year over year in the out years as something to achieve. Because if you're doing that, you can compound your way to greatness pretty quickly.
0: Yeah. And as as I was looking at that, you've captured this, I think, since 2017, and it's been pretty stable around 85% growth persistence rate. That's pretty cool. But let's jump into another thing, because now here I am doing something I try to advise our clients not to do, and that's how to avoid metrics and benchmarking overload. (laughs) It's a real challenge. I cannot tell you how many either board meetings I sat in as an operator or I'm getting feedback from my CEO and CFO clients like, oh, our board asked for another metric or they (laughs) said we need to benchmark this particular metric. So Sam, as an investor, what's your advice to founders and CEOs how to avoid metrics overload, including that kind of creeping metrics that you might get at a board meeting?
1: This is so much easier said than done. I mean, you know, I think every company faces this, and I think that this is a conversation that probably comes up in almost every boardroom or at least has in the ones that I've, I've been a part of. And it's, it's really hard to avoid because every leader has their own specific set of metrics that are important to them. Every board member or you know company has a specific North Star that they're marching the business towards. and you know sure enough, the broader the conversation gets, Suddenly you're, you're not dealing with, you know, four or five different metrics. You're, you've suddenly got a dozen or two dozen metrics that you're tracking. And you're right. It, it can be completely overwhelming. You know, I, again, I think going back to context, this is, you know, what metrics are being published and who's the audience that that metrics book, if you will, is intended for is a super important thing not to, not to lose sight of. Realizing that a board deck might look very, very different from a fundraising deck which might look very, very different from a specific departmental deck that's only being shared within, say, a sales department or a product department. All of those decks are gonna focus on a different set of metrics. But if you included all of them in one specific package, it could be overwhelming for the user, right? I think the important thing not to lose sight of here is this is that every team and every company should have a single North Star that they're marching towards. And it's important that the metrics that are presented are intimately tied into that North Star and making sure that they actually help inform the reader on where the team is relative to the goals that they set out to achieve. If if I were doing this today, and again, there's no universal right or wrong way to do this, I would try to answer it by asking myself a series of questions before presenting that metrics book. Does the metric tie back to the North Star before I add it? Does it actually matter in helping us measure, understand our business? you know, it's funny, you'd be surprised at how often the answer is no. And what you're looking at is actually a derivative of a derivative of a derivative or somebody's pet metric that they've focused on because it's important to what they're doing. And it doesn't necessarily tie back directly to the North star of the business. Do the metrics tell us something important about where the business is today or where it's going? I mean, these are the important things not to lose sight of. And then just a a couple of thoughts as I'm, as I'm talking to you here around formatting, you know, does the presentation of the charts flow in a logical, coherent way? You know, It's amazing how often you can see a metrics book where the format is out of order or it's not time sequential where it's like, hey, these, I know that these are important, but it, it doesn't flip together in the, in the right coherent way. Are the charts that are being presented in a way that's understandable to the reader? Again, it's so easy to get caught in the lead on specific metrics that you kind of lose sight of the bigger picture. And another thing, too, is, is just making sure that your central data repository ties back. And so it's, when you reference one data point in a certain part of the presentation versus another and it doesn't tie, you suddenly start to call into question as to whether or not you've got control over that metrics book, which is key. So yeah. I mean, that's a little bit of a long-winded answer, but I hope that helps.
0: No, Sam, I really want to double-click on that. And the last point that you made, were do the, all the metrics tie? Because I wanted to ask you kind of how do you minimize the number of metrics that you're capturing? especially if you're capturing different metrics for the board that they want to look at versus what your operating team uses to make business decisions. And one of the recommendations we make is make sure you identify exactly what metrics are important to your board and investors. And then if you're going to be presenting those once a quarter at your board meeting, and those are often lagging indicators, things like cap payback period or net revenue retention or gross margin, and make sure that the leading indicators Those metrics that your head of marketing or head of sales or head of products measuring have a direct linkage to those board-level metrics. Does that seem to make a lot of sense? And any metric that doesn't impact the board-level ones, ask yourself, why am I even calculating and using it?
1: I think that that, broadly speaking, is right. And again, every company is going to have their own set of metrics that are unique to their business and actually tell the story that helps them understand the context of the business where things were and and where they want to go. And this is not something that happens overnight, right? Where a management team is talking amongst themselves. They come to an agreeable set of points. You know, we have a standard set of metrics, some of which are available in scale studio that we think are important to track as a business. But in almost every conversation that I've ever been a part of, there's always one or two different things that come up that uniquely express what's going on at that particular point in time. There's a whole you know, canon of conversations coming out around usage-based pricing, which changes the dynamic around how you measure ARR, which is kind of an overused, very squishy term in some ways. I mean, even though it shouldn't be, but I think that there are specific things about certain businesses where focusing on those metrics might be actually the, the right thing to do, whereas focusing on those metrics for a different business that participates in a different space with a slightly different subscription model might be the wrong thing to do. But that's something that evolves over the course of many conversations. And again, there's no one-size-fits-all template, but this is something that evolves over the course of over the course of time.
0: Well, since there's no one-size-fits-all in the metrics you're tracking evolve, which means the benchmark is going to evolve. So I know you yep. have yep. Scale Studio that you mentioned. And from my outsider's perspective, it looks like they're very good at collecting and publishing benchmarks. Is that mm-hmm. kind of the primary purpose of Scale Studio and then... If yes, are you gonna expand upon that? What was the catalyst for creating Scale Studio?
1: I think for us is, is that this was a way for entrepreneurs that are not just in the portfolio, but entrepreneurs that are interested in learning more about scale and the way we operate to interact in a real basis. You know, they, they can go in and say, look at their metrics, they can punch in a specific data and they can get a real live report you know, with very, very high fidelity on where they stack up as a business and get a flavor for how we, how we work as a business. And at the stage of which we're investing, which is primarily series A's and B's, you know, we found that this is the one area where the founders that we work with need the most help you know, in building their business. This is the point at which go-to-market is a newish frontier in which they need help in really fine-tuning their go-to-market motions. And so that was one of the primary motivations. And again, it helps ground the conversation of data, and it helps assist the entrepreneurs in understanding where they stack up, what's the difference between good versus great. And for us, this is that we were having many of these conversations on the side before Scale Studio came to be. And then several years ago, you know, one of my partners, Dale Chang and team alongside the rest of the partners decided to institutionalize this knowledge in what became known as Scale Studio, basically publishing some of these data points, obviously on an anonymized basis, but making these playbooks more repeatable and giving an entrepreneurs a flavor for how we operate.
0: So, Sam, I'm going to see if you've solved two of the biggest challenges that I hear entrepreneurs talk about with benchmarks. So the first is, how do you, I know that these benchmarks are calculated the way I calculate net revenue retention? So how do you ensure the consistency of the benchmark calculations that Scale Studio provides? So
1: it's a great question because it's, it's tricky to do, but we have a standard set of definitions as to how we define all of the terms that you would see in Scale Studio. You know, How do you calculate year-over-year growth? How do you calculate gross sales efficiency, net sales efficiency, and magic number? I'm not gonna go through all of them, but we have very specific definitions of what all of those things are. Whenever somebody submits data into Scale Studio, that gets pre-vetted on the background. I wish that we had an automated process of doing this, but there's always somebody from our team looking at this and you know we have we have got a portfolio operations team that helps manage the consistency of this data but you're right it, it is a challenge to do but you know for us there is some sort of a vetting process on the background but having that set of definitions up front is, is definitely helpful in
0: control because because you have that dedicated team and you're constantly out there evaluating investments does that mean that you actually can update these benchmarks more frequently like on a monthly basis or how often do you refresh your benchmarks?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we we can refresh our benchmarks whenever new data comes in. And again, all of this data is anonymized and never revealed to anybody. But as soon as there is a new a new set of data that comes in, that gets incorporated as part of the benchmarks as soon as it's vetted by us and, and of course anonymized as well. So it is constantly being refreshed. And this isn't something that's refreshed once a year or twice a year. It's all of the benchmarks that we provide are always are, are constantly updated on a real-time basis.
0: Now, this is the bonus benchmarking content, Sam, for our listeners <laughs> who are at this point at the close to the end of our podcast, and that is markets are changing drastically right now for B2B SaaS and cloud companies, public markets. We've seen what some of the enterprise value multiples have done over the last two to three months. My question is, is the public market valuations impacting private company valuations today?
1: I think it's probably too early to call. I mean, my short and immediate answer is yes. I think it's probably been more acute in the later stage private rounds that are typically beyond where we participated in at scale. I mean, again, most of the rounds that we're doing are series A's and B's, and I think that we are kind of last to experience the shockwaves, but I, I would be lying if, if I didn't say that it started to happen, is that the ripple effect has been very real and it's been quick. You know, obviously you can look at whatever public SaaS comps data set you have, you know, the one that we track at scale ran all the way up to 18 times run rate revenue. Just a matter of six months ago. And as of the beginning of this week, we were back down to 7.8. But that's still above the all-time median of, of 5.5. I, I mean, you know, we we still believe that if you look at the trends over the course of the last 20 years, public ask multiples have been very, very rich. But yeah, we're certainly starting to see that in our business. And it'll be interesting to see what happens over the next six to 12 months.
0: Wow. So you're saying that 20x forward-looking revenue multiples aren't almost common. <laughs> yeah. So, but can you, you know, top 10% always kind of gets a premium. So Mm. at this point in time, do you think growth rate still kind of is the number one metric that impacts enterprise value? Or are there other metrics that have a more important correlation today? Things like net revenue retention or rule 40. Any changes in which metrics are most important to enterprise value?
1: It's hard to point to any single one because... You know, companies that are investing in, in very rapid growth also tend to have high burn rates. You know they tend to become more efficient you know as they reach scale and, and once the, the you know the repeatable revenues come in. There's been a lot of talk about the rule of 40. I, I would emphasize that that's probably not the, the metric that I would look at for companies at, at our specific stage of investment, but it probably becomes much more relevant as you look at the balance of growth and efficiency or growth and burn at the public scale. They're all important. I would say the growth is probably the most correlated, but there are also other metrics to, that are important to pay attention to, as you know.
0: And I think you said something very important. It depends on the stage of maturity. What's important, Absolutely. you know, rule 40, which balances both growth rate and um, operating profitability, EBIT over free cash flow, it's going to be very different if you're at a 5 million ARR versus a $35 million ARR run rate. hundred percent. That's exactly well, right. Unfortunately, this episode is coming to an end, but I want to give our listening audience a chance to get to know Sam a little bit better by asking you three quick questions. And the first is, have you got operating experience at Box? So you've done other things other than being an investor, an investor but what's the most enjoyable part of working in venture?
1: Every day is a new learning experience in venture. And yeah, I mean, this is the, this is the best job I've ever had. You know, I get to work with people who have gone a hundred or a thousand times as deep as I have in a specific market or a specific subject matter. And you get to work with those people hand in hand all the time. You get to think about technology trends and where the world is today, where it's going five or 10 years from now, and what the technology might look like to help enable how people do work. I mean, all of those
0: things are a confluence of the things that I love to do. So
1: it's a fun, it's a fun job.
0: Well, it's interesting. I get reached out to quite a bit by either undergrad or even graduate students who are working on their thesis and they want to know about, you know, metrics and investment and enterprise value, blah, blah, blah. But if you were talking to a soon to be college graduate who wants to be a B2B technology investor, what advice would you give them, Sam?
1: It's hard to synthesize that into one or two different things, but you know, pay close attention. To you know what your friends are doing, and looking at the technology that you and they have available to them, even if what they're doing seems super different from what you're used to, because there's a chance that you're watching the transformation of of where the world is going. And you know, I'll I'll never forget when I saw Dropbox for the first time and thinking, ah, like, who's ever going to use that? <laughs> we have thumb drives. But sure enough, you know, you look you look at Dropbox and Box that were just getting going at that point in time. And, you know, there's some of the most well-known cloud content management companies in the world. Pay attention to those things, you know, even if the person that you're having a conversation with might seem a little funky, you know, you never want to discount how quickly things can change and what people might be up to. So stay curious.
0: It's funny. I still remember someone coming up to me in early 2000 and said, hey, have you ever tried this Google search thing? And I'm like, why? I, I can't you exactly. in excited. <laughs> things change. Okay. Last thing, is there a book that you'd recommend to an aspiring early stage investor, even angel investors?
1: There's so many out there. The, the one book that I've read, and I, I read this, you know, right before I started at Scale, that I think is is really one of the best, and still to this day, one of the best frameworks for for getting a basic understanding of you know venture capital and basic terms that you'll hear in the ecosystem. Brad Feld wrote a book called Venture Deals a number of years ago, and he's he's come out with a number of different new editions with you know slight updates. If I had to recommend one single book to learn the basics of terms that you'd hear in the venture and tech ecosystem, that would be it. Great.
0: Well, that's Sam Baker, who's a principal at Scale Venture Partners. I want to thank you so much for being our guest on the Metrics of Measure Up today. Thank you.
1: Absolutely. No, Ray, thanks so much for having me on board. This has been
0: great. And to our listening audience, if you're enjoying our guests and the topics that we discuss here on the Metrics of Measure Up, it would mean the world to us to go ahead and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app provide us that five-star rating and provide comments on how we can make the content even better for you as you're moving along your B2B SaaS and cloud journey. Thanks again, Sam. Thank you for listening to today's Metrics to Measure Up podcast. If you would like to learn more about B2B SaaS metrics and benchmarks, please visit revopsquared.com.